0: we're in John chapter 6 this morning. We're going to be taking a moment to look at verses 1 through 15. We're going to read it in pieces, sort of as we come to it. But this is the feeding of the 5,000. It's a story in Scripture that you are all very familiar with. I'd like to say just a few words by way of introduction as we before we dive in over the past several decades we've we've witnessed an incredible explosion in so-called faith healers and the prosperity gospel and the word of faith gospel Benny Hinn is a very recognizable name you've surely all seen the videos of him on stage swinging his jacket at people as they fall to the floor. He's well known for his supposed healing crusades where he packs out large stadiums of people who have various forms of physical maladies. It's said that he actually held the largest healing service in history once upon a time in India. It's reported that over 7 million people attended his healing crusade over three different services. In the documentary American Gospel, which if you have not seen, I highly commend that to you, Benny Hinn's nephew is in it, his name is Costi Hinn. He speaks at length about having been a part of of Benny's ministry some years back, and he speaks of the lavish lifestyle that they lived, the very luxurious hotels that they would stay in as they were on crusades, some of them costing, many of them costing many thousands of dollars per night. Needless to say, business is good for false gospels. The prosperity gospel, it's much the same. Kenneth Copeland is a very well-known name. He's often regarded as the modern, modern father of the prosperity gospel. Believe it or not, he is said to be worth north of $500 million. He easily tops the charts of any top wealthiest preacher's list that you could find on the internet. In fact, all of the top ten wealthiest pastor's lists that I was able to find, every one of them was full from top to bottom of either faith healers, prosperity gospel preachers, or word of faith preachers. Why? Haven't these people been proven to be frauds by now? Well, I would submit to you that they are so popular still, and they will continue to be, because they present Jesus as the one who will meet every one of your material needs. If you will have Jesus, you don't have to be sick anymore. You can have the car that you've always wanted. You can rebuke your bad debt away. If you will just name it and claim it, you can have your heart's desire in the name of Jesus today. But it never works. They name and claim many things that never come into fruition. The likes of Jesse Duplantis, Creflo Dollar, T.D. Jakes, Stephen Furtick, Joel Osteen, all of the so-called pastors who have copy and pasted these men's versions of ministry. These men are wildly popular because people are most interested in a Jesus who meets every one of their physical needs, much more than the Jesus who meets My spiritual needs. People are more than willing to come to Jesus as healer and provider and miracle worker and anything else but Lord and God. But this is not unique to our day and age. It's not just because we're in America that this is so popular. It has always been this way. In fact, that is exactly what's going on in the text that we are going to look at today. This morning, as we visit this account of this very familiar miracle, the feeding of the multitude, it's the only miracle outside of the resurrection that's recorded by all four of the Gospels. That tells us, then, that this is a very important moment in Jesus' ministry. And my friends, it's not here just so that we can read it and say, wow, isn't that amazing that Jesus did that? It's here for a much greater purpose. Now we know, we don't have to guess in the Gospel of John why this miracle is here. We know that for John's part, he includes the signs that he does in his Gospel for a very specific reason. He has this sign here to point to Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, so that you may believe in his name and have eternal life. That is the truth of every single one of the signs in the Gospel of John. But we've already seen that some will see the signs and believe in Jesus for who he is. And others see the signs and want what Jesus gives. Our passage today will set up another extended discourse later on in chapter 6. But for today, we're going to see that coming to Jesus as the one who will provide for all of your physical needs does not honor him even if you call him king. Let's begin by reading verses 1 through 4. We're looking at the perplexing problem. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. John begins this chapter by using this common phrase, after this. It doesn't really denote any particular amount of time, uh, but a lot of people would say that there's a, at least six months or more time that passes between f- chapter 5 and chapter 6. But it simply is really just here to indicate that after the last thing that happened, this is the next thing that happens on the timeline of his ministry. As you recall, Jesus went to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews back at the beginning of chapter 5. He went to a man on the Sabbath who had been an invalid for 38 years, heals him instantaneously. That leads him into a lengthy discourse wherein Jesus demonstrates and defends his deity. It's the clearest picture that we've seen in the Gospel of John so far of Jesus speaking of his deity. And so sometime after all of that, Jesus is now found going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to a place near a city that King Herod Antipas founded, and he named after the Roman Caesar Tiberius Caesar. That's why it was called the Sea of Tiberius. It was apparently such a prominent city that eventually the name of the city became the name of the lake. But why is Jesus going to the other side of this sea? Thankfully, because this account is in all four of the Gospels, we don't really have to guess. We have a lot of extra detail about what's going on here. In Mark's Gospel, which is it's in Mark chapter 6, that you can find the same account, it tells us that Jesus had sent out his disciples on this sort of, of ministry training mission. He sends them out two by two. They're given authority over the unclean spirits. They're going around to the surrounding communities, casting out demons, healing the sick, and guess what? Preaching repentance. Their fame is beginning to grow as they go about on this journey. And another thing happens around this time. John the Baptist is beheaded. It would seem then that after after looking at all three of the other accounts of the synoptics about what's going on here of this same miracle, that Jesus and his disciples are getting away to rest, to be alone, to rest from their ministry journey, because it even says that they didn't even have a moment to eat, they were so busy, but also probably to mourn the loss of John the Baptist. Perhaps Jesus even has in mind to prepare his disciples for what is to come. It's not always going to be large crowds who are eager to see and be near Jesus. The crowds will soon be eager to have Jesus crucified. And later after that, the disciples themselves will be persecuted and martyred. In chapter 5, we saw that the Jews had already hated Jesus enough that they wanted to kill him. But as for the general masses right now, Jesus is gaining popularity. John tells us in verse 2 here that a large crowd was following him. It would appear that Jesus here is gaining, experiencing great ministerial success. More people are showing up than ever before. They are seeing explosive growth. This is how so many people view ministerial success today isn't it Oh we were at capacity today Oh we, we we had standing room only today We had this many dollars in the offering bucket But what we see here in this text is that a large crowd is not in and of itself evidence of ministerial success now We know that God can do great things with a large crowd. It's not sinful. It doesn't mean a church is a false church because they have a large crowd. But that by itself doesn't mean anything. Why, could, why do I say that? Because of why they are following Jesus. Look here at verse 2 again. A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs. This is a very important Detail. John doesn't say that they're following Jesus because he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It doesn't say that you know they heard his compelling defense of his deity in chapter 5, such that they were believing now that Jesus is God, and so they're following him. It doesn't say that they were convinced that he's the Messiah and they believed that he was here for, to save them. No, they're following him because they saw the signs. A large crowd's following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. They're following Jesus because he's going to meet all of their physical needs. They're following Jesus either because they want to be healed or they want to see a miracle. I want to see what you're going to do. I want to see you do something cool, Jesus. Who, who else is sick? Oh, look at that guy. Heal that guy. But these are not the same, these are not people who truly believe in Jesus. They're following him, they're gathered around him, but they are not the people who will submit to Jesus. They're the same kind of people that we find at the end of chapter 2. If you want to flip there, the very end of chapter 2, or you can just listen. Chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. When? And they saw the signs that he was doing. Now here's the all-important part. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. One of the things that we said when we looked at that passage was that it's not so much about whether or not you claim to believe in Jesus or you claim to be a follower of Jesus. What matters is, does Jesus believe your belief? Does he believe that you're actually believing in him? Or does he see in your heart and know what you're after him for? Friends, we can fool each other. We can, we can fool one another. We can fool ourselves. But we can't fool Jesus. He knows what is in man. Is your belief true and genuine in the person of Jesus and in His sacrificial work on the cross? Or is your belief rooted in what Jesus can do for your physical needs? Shallow belief comes to Jesus this way. I would love to be debt free. I would, I would love to be healed of cancer. I would love to be able to get that promotion at work. I would love to see my family reunited. And if Jesus can help me with that, then I will take Jesus. How did Jesus help you to be successful in business? How did Jesus help you put your kids through college? How did Jesus help you weather the recession? Tell me, and maybe, Jesus can help me too. When we believe in Jesus or claim to follow him because of our worldly needs, even if they are good things, we can easily find ourselves following Jesus because of that thing that we really want him to do for us instead of actually following him for who he is. Jesus knows what kind of belief you have. If it is shallow, just wanting from him, or if it is true, wanting Him. But we see another problem here. We see faithless disciples. The Gospels show us that even true followers of Christ, true believers, they can act faithlessly. We're told that Jesus and His disciples, they go up on this mountain, they're trying to be alone, but there's this massive crowd that's there waiting for them. Verse 4 tells us that the Passover feast was at hand, and so we know that there were a lot of people in that area coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. But I believe that John includes this detail, not so much as a historical background, but for it to serve as a theological context within which we should understand this passage. In other words, he includes this detail so that we will think of the Passover and the significance of what the Passover represents, and that will help us understand what's going on here. We'll get into more on that in just a moment. But Luke, in his gospel, he tells us that Jesus, he spent this day healing everyone who needed to be healed. And he was also speaking to all the people of the kingdom of God. Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus did this because he had compassion for the crowds. It says because they were as sheep without a shepherd. They were lost, helpless, and hopeless. So the great shepherd takes time to shepherd these poor sheep. I mean, the day is now late here in our account in John. We're filling in details from the other Gospels. But the day is now late. They're off in the middle of nowhere. The other Gospels say this is a desolate place. They're they're out in the boonies. They're out in the kind of place that your GPS can't find. And they need to eat. And so in the other Gospels, the disciples are saying, we need to send them home. They need to go get some food on their way home. It's late. We're in a desolate place. They don't even know where they're going to find anything. There's not even an all-sups around. But here we see Jesus asking Philip the question. It's a very practical question. Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Do you think that Jesus is asking this question because he genuinely wants Philip to come up with a plan of how to get enough bread to feed all of these people? Do you think so? I mean, Jesus, maybe Jesus is tired. He spent the whole day healing people. Maybe now he needs the help of Philip. Philip should know better here, shouldn't he? After all, Philip is the one who immediately followed Jesus back in chapter 1. In fact, he was so convinced of the identity of Jesus that he went to find Nathanael immediately to bring him to Jesus. And do you remember that interaction between Philip and Nathaniel? Philip said, We have found him of whom Moses... In the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. And how did Nathaniel respond? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip didn't say, yeah, you're probably right. He said, come and see. He was so convinced that this is the one that Moses in the law and all the prophets that they wrote about. He was so convinced. That he's calling his friends, "Come, you got to come and see him. And now here in this moment, what's going on? Is Philip still that confident in Jesus? Is he still confident that Jesus is the one that Moses spoke about? After all, didn't Moses feed the Israelites in the wilderness? On the heels of the Passover being instituted? So surely, maybe Philip would call this to mind. Verse 6, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus is testing Philip and the other disciples. Do you really have faith in Jesus that he is who he says he is? Do you really believe in him? Or are you doubting now? This is an important question for all of us. When we are faced with a situation that we have no clue how we are going to resolve this, Will we have faith in God that he knows what he's doing? Or will we be faithless? Well, Which route did Philip and the disciples take? Let's see, verse 7. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of the other disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? They picked the path of faithlessness. Philip is saying, no, there's no way we can feed all of these people. Think of this. The disciples have witnessed Jesus turn water into wine. They were with him whenever the official came to him. And Jesus just spoke a word. And this official's son was healed. They were with him. Not to mention the fact that they have been with him all day long. And he's been healing people the whole day. Or even further yet, that he commissioned them, giving them power just before this, to go out two by two, heal people, and cast out demons. And now, now Jesus needs their help to figure this one out. Hey, Philip, I mean, do you think we have enough money? Jesus, who has been supernaturally doing all of these mighty works in front of them, now is saying, Philip, do we have enough money? Do we have enough money to do this? The disciples here are too slow of heart, too faithless in the moment, to trust that Jesus knows what he is about to do. But notice also that John is making sure to show the reader that there is absolutely no way this crowd was going to be fed. We're told that there were 5,000 men here, not including women and children. Depending on which historian is is talking, this could have been in the neighborhood of 20,000 people. That's a crowd, friends. That's a lot of people, 20,000 people, even 5,000. This is already an insurmountable amount of people to feed. There were far too many of them and far too many resources. They didn't have enough money. 200 denarii, a a denarius was one day's worth of wages approximately. So they're saying if 200 days worth of wages wouldn't be enough to feed all of these people, even just a sampling. We couldn't even give them Costco samples with 200 days' wages. And there is somebody here who has some food, but he just has five little barley loaves. Now, the word loaf is a little tricky in in our language because in our mind it puts in the picture of a loaf of bread that you would go and buy at United. But they say that these are actually just probably more like a, a large cracker, like a little cake. This was... Essentially, a normal lunch for one person. Five little cakes, two little fish, pickled fish, and you're going to feed 5,000 people? 5,000 men? Grown men? Burly men? I don't think so. This is an impossible task. So what are they going to do? What are they going to do with no money and all they have is this little boy's struggle meal? Let's look at the purposeful provision, verses 10 through 13. Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. Have the people sit down. We're told in Mark's Gospel that Jesus has them sit in groups of 50 and 100. And it's amazing because the disciples and the other gospels are saying, hey, we need to send these people away so that they can go get food. And Jesus says, no, tell them to sit. Not just are we not going to send them away, but we're going to tell them to stay put and hang around for a little while. Get comfortable, my friends. Jesus takes this boy's lunch. He gives thanks to God for this provision. And then they give out food to all of the people. Every last person who was there was fed from this boy's lunch. Whether it was 10,000 or 15 or 20,000, every last mouth was fed. The text says in verse 11 that they ate as much as they wanted. This was like a Thanksgiving meal. And it was supernaturally created. Imagine how delicious this was. I mean, Pickled fish does not sound good. But if it was miraculously created by God incarnate, I would imagine it was delicious. And this wasn't just a sampling of food. It's not like everyone just got a little cracker and a little nibble. Everyone ate their fill. Jesus created so much food that everyone ate until they were satisfied and then there was food left over. Look at verse 12. When they had eaten their fill... He told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments. What? Are you kidding? First, they didn't have enough. Now they have too much. Now there's an abundance of food. So much that we're taking little little baskets home. Twelve baskets full of leftovers. This isn't just some cheap little party trick. Think of how many witnesses there were here to this miracle. Thousands and thousands of people who have just not just seen a miracle, but were part of it. They ate the food. They got to ingest it, and they were satisfied. Not just a snack, but a whole meal. Jesus here is showing that He can do what only God can do, because Jesus is God. Namely, He can feed a massive crowd of people, with food that he created out of thin air in the middle of a wilderness. He can miraculously feed a large group of people in a wilderness. Where have we heard this before? I would like to submit to you that there are three elements here to this sign. I say that it's purposeful provision because Jesus' end goal is not just to feed people. This is the problem with these false gospels is that we think that that is Jesus' end goal is that you have a nice, comfortable, easy life. That you never experience hardship in this life. And if that will happen, then Jesus is happy. That's not his goal. There is so much more here than meets the eye. The first element of this provision is that it's symbolic. It symbolizes Calls to mind the manna that fell from heaven in Exodus chapter 16. We find that account there of this miraculous provision of God. By the way, before God actually does the miracle in that chapter, do you know what he says? He says he's going to do this thing so that you will know that the Lord is God. Why is Jesus doing this miracle? The Israelites had just been freed from Egyptian captivity, which brought about the institution of which feast? It was the Passover. They had just instituted the Passover in Exodus 16. It's on the heels of that. Then they crossed the Red Sea. God displayed His mighty power, splitting a sea in half. They walk over on dry land. And guess what happens? The people were faithless. They were just freed from Egyptian captivity, miraculously. They walked over a sea on dry land. They saw the sea part, and they get to the other side. And once again, they're faithless. Listen to Exodus sixteen three. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat of pots and ate bread to the full for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger wow there's no food it's not as though the same God who just performed this incredible miracle of parting a sea had no idea what to do now Well, well that's it guys it's all I really planned for that's The faithlessness of these people. They're in the wilderness. And even though they had witnessed so many incredible works of God, they're found faithless in the wilderness because they're hungry. So what does God do? He rains down food from heaven. No big deal. No big deal. Just food raining from the sky. Bread rained down from heaven in the middle of the wilderness. For decades, by the way. This wasn't just a one-time event. This happened for decades. The people ate their fill every single day. No one went hungry. Isn't that exactly what has happened in our text? The Jesus, in the context of Passover, He now is feeding His people in the middle of the wilderness where there is no food. What does He feed them? He feeds them bread. What is he showing us? That the same way that Moses did that, Jesus, who is the new and better Moses, one better than Moses, rather, he can miraculously provide for them in the wilderness because he is not just a servant of God like Moses, but because he is God in the flesh. But there's another element here of this sign for us to consider. It's that it's instructive. This miraculous provision is instructive. It instructs us of the abundance of provision that we find in Christ. Notice the stark contrast between man's inability to provide and Jesus' abundant provision. Andrew and Philip display that they had no hope of feeding all of these people with human effort. They didn't have enough money. They didn't have enough food. They couldn't even scrounge up enough money if they tried. They didn't even know where to buy food. But Jesus was able to provide so much that everyone can not only get a bite, but have their fill, and there is still enough that there are leftovers. The point there is that they did not exhaust his supply. He didn't run out. No one went away empty-handed or hungry. So much so that they filled 12 baskets full of leftovers, He's not scraping the bottom of the barrel so that everyone can have a little taste. But there is more than enough provision in Christ to go around for everyone. Look down at verse 32 in chapter 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What is the point is that there is enough in Jesus that we can all be satisfied in him. Not just those who first came to saving faith in church history. Not just the apostles. Not just the elite. Not just people who were in the earlier parts of church history and now there's not enough left over in Jesus to satisfy the rest of us. No, there is enough in Jesus to satisfy the needs of every single human soul and not run out. Nothing else can satisfy the human soul, in fact. Only Christ can. Money cannot. Safety cannot. Miracles cannot. Healings cannot. Nothing but Jesus. And ironically, when we pursue anything else for satisfaction, we end up completely dissatisfied. And we rob ourselves of the very opportunity for satisfaction that we're searching in the first place. I love the way that Thomas Brooks said it in his book, Smooth Stones. Quote, self-seeking blinds the soul that it cannot see a beauty in Christ nor an excellency in his holiness. It distempers the palate that a man cannot taste sweetness in the word of God nor in the ways of God nor in the society of the people of God. It shuts the hand against all the soul-enriching offers of Christ. It hardens the heart against all the knocks and entreaties of Christ. It makes the soul as an empty vine and as a barren wilderness. In a word, there is nothing that bespeaks a man to be more empty and void of God, Christ, and grace than self-seeking." In other words... The more that you seek self-satisfaction, your own desires, seeking the fulfillment of your fleshly desires, the more empty you are and the more hardened you are against the solution, against actually finding satisfaction because it hardens you against Christ. The third element, the third thing that we can learn from this this provision here, it's prophetic. I believe that we find this layer of meaning and this sign that it's pointing to the day that when we will dine with the Lord in His fully consummated kingdom. In Revelation 19, we're told, the marriage supper of the Lamb where all of Christ's people, listen, all of Christ's people, not some of them, all of them, will be gathered together with Christ And we will dine with Him. We will feast with Him. And guess what? There will be enough on that day for everyone. There will be leftovers. There will be enough for all of us. Now imagine what that day is going to be like. I don't know what a marriage supper is like in the context where there is no more sin, no more effects of sin, but I am sure that it is anything unlike anything that we could imagine. These three elements here are simply lessons that we can learn from the incredible miracle that Jesus performs. My hope is that these three lessons will help us to see the glory of Jesus, unlike the conclusion that the Jews arrive at. Let's look at the promised prophet, verse 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. This is a reference to what Moses says in Deuteronomy 18. I'm sure you know this. Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. They are acknowledging that this must be who Moses was talking about. After all, this Jesus is doing something that only Moses had done. He miraculously provided for the Israelites in the wilderness. This promised prophet was understood as a coming Messiah. So it appears that maybe they're actually coming close to making an actual confession of Christ. I mean, they're at least saying that he's the promised prophet, and this was a messianic title. But verse 15 shows us, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. Look down at verse 26. Verse 26. You're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, as we began with saying, they didn't want what the signs pointed to. They just wanted more food, they wanted their physical needs met. Those were the terms upon which they wanted Jesus. We should always go back to chapter 2 for an example of the right reaction to the miracle of Jesus. The miracles of Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 11, it says this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And the disciples believed in him. See, true disciples, they see what the signs point to. The glory of the Son, the only Son from the Father. Jesus here is showing us that he's not interested in big crowds who want to be healed or want to learn how to live their best life now. He is not interested in the multitudes who will fill churches today eager to have their itching ears scratched. He isn't impressed by sold-out stadiums of people who want a televangelist to swing his coat at them so that they'll fall on the ground. He doesn't have any interest in those who would make him king Because he's the one who will meet all of their felt needs. How can I possibly know that? Because Jesus disappears. He saw that they were going to come and make him king, and he left. Friends, if that doesn't tell you that Jesus wanted no part of this, that Jesus was not here to build an earthly kingdom, that Jesus is not interested in people just all of this fanfare because of shallow reasons, then I don't know what will. Jesus left. They were so excited about this miracle because they ate the food. They wanted him to be king. They wanted government cheese. They wanted free handouts. Imagine, if this is our king, imagine what our potlucks are going to be like. Just a miracle-working king. That's who they wanted. They weren't interested in following Christ. They wanted to follow the miracle worker, the healer, the one who's going to take care of their physical needs, the one who wants you to live your best life now. That's the Jesus they want. They want him to be king of Israel so that they can be freed from Roman oppression and live in the miracle-working care of Jesus. But these are not the kinds of people who want Jesus to be king of their life. They're not willing to submit to Him and His Lordship. They want to see more miracles and they're unwilling to see what the signs point to. They don't see the glory of Christ. They see bread. They don't see the glory of Jesus. They see healings. They say they see... Cancer is gone, which is a wonderful thing. We should pray for those things. But if that's all we want Jesus for, later on in this chapter, we're going to see that Jesus preaches hard things that people don't want to hear. And guess what they do? They leave. They wanted him to be king. Then he started Telling them hard truths, things that they didn't like to hear, and then they left. That's exactly how it is today. Wherever you find the so called prosperity gospel, word of faith gospel, all of the other false gospels, wherever you find people looking to make a buck off of healing in the name of Jesus or anything else in the name of Jesus, rest assured you will not find Jesus there. Because he's not interested in being king of shallow belief. He's interested in receiving the glory that is rightly his, because he's God. Don't be fooled by crowds or by thousands of video views or Facebook likes. Plenty of people today want the nice, healing, miracle-working Jesus There are plenty who want to build a huge following off of focusing only on the promises of the gospel without ever touching on the demands or the warnings of the gospel. But you can't pick and choose what part of Jesus you're willing to accept. You must come to him for who he is. So which one are you this morning? Are you coming to Jesus for who he is? Or do you find yourself more interested in what Jesus can do for your business? What he can mean for your financial security, for your physical health, maybe your relationship status? Or are you coming to Christ for him, even if it means nothing else? The beauty of the gospel is that if we have Christ, we have everything. Paul tells us, that all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. When you are satisfied in Christ, there is nothing else that you seek. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time in your word. Lord, we thank you that you are a good God and you don't leave us destitute that you do provide for our physical needs. But we thank you most importantly, far and away more importantly, that you provided for our spiritual needs. That you have provided a lamb who takes away the sin of the world. I thank you that we have eternal riches in Christ. And I pray that as we go about this week and our lives, that you would divest us of a love and a taste of the world And its comforts and trinkets help us to be increasingly satisfied in Christ. We pray for this in the name of Jesus. Amen.